All right, well, you can turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 3. We're going to continue in our study through the book of Romans. Romans chapter 3, and I just want to read for us, before we actually get into the text, I want to read for us the text, the scripture we'll be looking at today. We're in a three, three-part series, Guilty is Charged, and there'll probably be part four and five, I don't know. Um, but uh, we're work, working our way, wandering our way through the the text of Scripture here in Romans chapter 3. And I just want to read the first uh, couple verses, beginning in verse 9 of our text for this morning. Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 9. What then, are, are we any better off? No, not at all. For as we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, there is none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. I'm going to stop there because that's basically where we're going to stop today. Last week, we looked at the doctrine of total depravity. The idea that in and of ourselves, we have nothing of any value to offer to God. That's a hard doctrine for a lot of people. It's a hard doctrine for me to understand, uh, and I don't totally understand it other than know that I know myself and I know that I'm a sinner and uh, of a depraved nature and will and everything else. Um, and there were some questions last week after the, after the message, good questions, I want to let you know. Um, and so I, I thought in light of last week's questions, I just want to spend a little bit of time in way of introduction this morning to make sure that we have a good footing, a good foundation upon which we can continue on with the text. Um, Last week, I mentioned at the beginning of the service uh, two two men, Martin Luther and uh, Erasmus, and they basically came at the whole idea of the question about the will. Because this question comes up. Are you saying that we don't have a will? Are we saying that we don't have a free will? Is our will free? Um, and I looked at those two men and uh, mentioned what they, they put out. Luther put out a study called The Bondage of the Will, saying that the will is not free. It's bound by sin. And he put that out in opposition to Erasmus's book, his, his study, his thesis, on the freedom of the will. Uh, saying that, no, 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 that's wrong. You know, our, our wills are free. We can do whatever we want. Well, this week I've been studying Jonathan Edwards, who's another fine uh, theologian and preacher of his day. And he wrote a treatise on this subject. And the treatise is called this, A Careful and Strict Inquiry into the prevailing notions of the freedom of the will. And I thought, what a clever way to title this little treatise that he came up with. Because the title does not specifically state that Edwards was asserting that our wills are free, only that he was going to investigate it. That he was going to look at the different ideas about this idea of the freedom of the will. And it's not by chance, I think, that Edwards titled it that way to come up with words that were basically the opposite of what Luther's treatise was. 
to gain people's interest in what he had to say. In the end, Edwards did come out, Jonathan Edwards came out on the same side as Luther and all the other biblical theologians before him. But along the way, he made some observations. And I want to share these observations with you because I think they're just brilliant. And they, they, they lay down a, a foundation upon, for me personally, as I studied through this, that it answered a lot of questions for me. So it's kind of fresh for me, and I hope it'll be, it'll be fresh for you as well. Um, he came up with basically three different things that he wanted to look at. He wanted to look at the definition of the will. He wanted to look at the motives. And then he also wanted to look at man's moral inability to deal with the whole idea of choosing anything. And so, in way of introduction this morning, I just want to share with you a couple points from Jonathan Edwards' treatise on this subject. And the first item there, it's up on the screen, it should be, it's not in your, your bullet, or not in your notes, but was the definition that he gave. The definition. Because it's very important to understand the first thing that Edwards did was he had to define what is the will. We throw that term around, oh, do you have a free will or is it bound? Well, what is the will? What are we talking about? And no one had ever done this previously. Luther didn't do it. Erasmus didn't do it. Augustine, everybody had operated on the simple assumption that we all know what the will is. And if we had to define the will, we would say, well, we call the will that mechanism in us that makes choices. That's what we would say. Well, he said, I don't think that's right. Matter of fact, he came up with a different definition. He said, the definition of the will is that by which the mind chooses anything. You say, well, isn't that the same thing? It's really not. It's really not. And I want to explain that to you. They may not seem like there's a lot of difference there, but there's a major one. Because according to Edwards, what we choose is not determined by the will itself. It's not determined by the will itself as if it were something separate onto itself. It doesn't work that way. It's not determined what we choose by the will itself, but by the mind. I mean, if you just think about it logically, you're going, yeah, that kind of makes sense. And that means our, our choices are determined by what we think is most desirable. What we think is the, most, the best course of action. That's how we make decisions. I mean, it's pretty basic. But so many times we think of the will as being something in and of itself, and it's not. It's subject to the mind. When you make decisions, where are you going to go buy gas? What do you do? Oh, my will wants me to go here. No. You look at the gas app you have, Gas Buddy or whatever, and you say, where's the cheapest, right? And is it, is it within driving distance? It doesn't make it, you know, I'm not going to drive 50 miles to save a couple pennies. And then you go and you fill up your tank. But your mind makes the decision. Your will makes that decision based upon what your mind tells it to do. So I, I, I like that definition. The will is that by which the mind chooses anything. Kind of opens it up. The second thing that Jonathan Edward covered in his, 
his treatise was this, and I think this is just brilliant too. He called it motives. And he asked this simple question. Here's what he said. Why is it that the mind chooses one thing rather than another? Do you ever think about that? Why do you choose one thing over another? His answer was this. The mind chooses as it does because of motive. That's why we make decisions. Based on motive. The mind isn't neutral, beloved. It thinks that some things are better than others. Would you agree with that? And because it thinks that way, it always chooses the better things. If a person thought one course of action would be more beneficial than the other, he thought this course of action would be more beneficial for his family than this course of action, he would choose the one that would be the best course of action based upon what he knows about the facts. If you run into somebody that says, well, I know this is the better course of action, but I'm going to go this way because it's not. They're irrational. Would you agree? You know, we even, when you carry that to an extent, when people make decisions that are totally irrational, things that are, that are totally always not beneficial, you tend to think they're a little nuts. They're insane. Why would somebody do that? So his question was, does this mean that the will is bound? Someone asked me a couple weeks ago, well, you said we don't have a free will. And I said, well, it's bound to sin. We're a slave of sin. That's how we're described before we come to Christ. That's what the Bible says. We're slaves to sin. But I like his treatise because it just lays it out and it lays it out in a way that really makes sense what he says is this does this mean that the will is bound then he says quite the contrary stay with me it means that the will is free it's always free that is it's free to choose and it will always choose what the mind thinks is best. But what does the mind think is best? See, here we get, pardon the pun, to the heart of the problem, the heart of the issue, as it involves choosing God. Stay with me on this. When we are confronted with God, the mind of the sinner never thinks that the way of God is a good course. That's what Scripture says. The will is free to choose God. Nothing is stopping it. But the mind does not regard submission to God and serving God as being desirable. Therefore, what does it do? Instead of choosing God, it turns from God. Even when the gospel is presented by the most eloquent person. 
Have you ever been in a situation where you're sharing the gospel with somebody and you're kind of fumbling over your words and you're thinking, man, I just wish Ray Comfort was here to help me or, or somebody of that stature and surely this person would get saved if they were here. It doesn't matter about that. Because the human mind, the human heart will always turn from God even when the gospel is presented in the most winsome way. I don't know about you, but that takes a big burden off me. The heart turns from God, the mind turns from God because of what we saw back in Romans chapter 1. The mind does not want to do what God, who is sovereign, wants it to do. It does not consider the righteousness of God to be a way to personal happiness or personal fulfillment or anything. It doesn't want to be subject to that. It does not want its true sinful nature exposed to everybody. I mean, obviously the mind is wrong in those judgments. The way it chooses is actually the way of alienation. The way of misery. The Bible says the end of that way leads to what? Death. But human beings, in our own logic, think sin to be the best way. Therefore, unless God changes the way we think with our minds, which, by the way, he does, by the miracle of the new birth, unless he does that, our minds always tell us to turn from God. And so, we turn from God. Just like Romans 1 says. So you have here the definition, you have the motive, and then the third thing he goes over in his treatise, which is also equally brilliant, he talks about moral inability. Moral inability. I mean, why... The will never chooses God. Ask yourself that question. Even though it's free to do so, it concerns motive. It concerns this third thing, moral inability, which is responsibility. See, this is what really troubled Pelagius in his treatise. He couldn't figure this out. And here Edwards wisely distinguishes between what he called the natural inability and what he termed the moral inability. And he gives this illustration. In the natural world, there are animals which eat nothing but meat. What do we call them? Carnivores. Caro, carnus, means meat. There are other animals that eat nothing but vegetation. What do we call them? Herbivores. And that comes from herba, which means vegetables. Imagine somehow that we captured a lion, a carnivore, and that we placed a big bale of hay or a, 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 a trough of, of oats in front of the lion. He will not eat the hay and he won't eat the oats. Why not? Because he's physically or naturally unable to eat them? Can he open his mouth and eat them? Could he do that? Yeah, he could. Physically. 
Physically, he could munch on the oats, he could munch on the hay and swallow them. But he does not, and he will not. He'd most likely starve to death before he'd eat that. Because it's not in his nature to eat this kind of food. Now, somehow, if you could become Dr. Doolittle and be able to talk to this lion, and if you could ask the lion, why you would not eat the herbivore's meal of hay and oats, and somehow the lion could communicate to you, he would say this, I cannot eat this food because I hate it. I will only eat meat. Kind of like some of your kids at dinner time when they're looking at Brussels sprouts or something like that. And you say, well, that's kind of a silly illustration. It's kind of a silly illustration until you come to see the words that our Lord used. The words that God used in the Old Testament. In Psalm 34, 8, it says this, beloved, Taste and see that the Lord is good. Jesus himself said in John six fifty one, he said, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If a man eats of this bread, he will live forever. It begs the question, why will a sinful man or woman not taste and see that the Lord is good or feed upon this living bread that Jesus has to offer? Why won't they do it? To use the lion's words, it's because he hates it. He hates the food. The sinner will not come to Christ because he does not want to. It's not because he cannot come physically. We see people who exercise their own will and raise a hand or walk, a, walk an aisle and, and so-called come to Christ. We all know people like that. And now their life's in disarray. There's no transformation at all, but they, they hold on to that decision that they made because they came physically. Now, there's a lot of people that would say, well, that's kind of extreme. I don't know if I hold to that teaching, and you may even have some objections to that. Because the Bible surely does say that anyone who will come to Christ may come to him. Jesus did invite us to come, did he not? Didn't he say, whoever comes to me, I will never, what, no way cast out? John 6, 37. That's exactly what Jesus said. But you know what, beloved? It's beside the point. Anyone who wants to come to Christ may come to him. That is why Jonathan Edwards insisted that the will is not bound. The fact that we may come to him is what makes our refusal to seek God so unreasonable. And it literally increases our guilt before God. But who is it who wills to come? That's the key question. Who is it that wills to come? You know what the answer is? No one. No one. Except those whom the Holy Spirit has already performed the irresistible work of the new birth. 
So that as a result of that miracle, their spiritual eyes, which have been blinded, are open. And for the first time, they can see God's truth. And their totally depraved mind, which in itself has no spiritual understanding whatsoever, is renewed. And it embraces the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior. This is not a new doctrine. This is something that's been around for years long before any of us have ever been here. It's the purest, it's the most basic form of the doctrine of man, and it's embraced by most Protestants and even Catholics. They may not even know that they honestly believe that, but they do. The Westminster Catechism says this, the sinfulness of that state wherein two man fell consists in the guilt of Adam's first sin. The want of that righteousness wherein he was created and the corruption of his nature whereby he is utterly indisposed, disabled, and made opposite to all that is spiritually good and wholly inclined to all evil and that continually. I suppose that at this point there's some people who would raise some objections to this. And maybe even somewhat reluctantly they would say, well, okay, we see the inability of the will to choose God or to believe in Christ. And, okay, it's kind of the prevailing doctrine of the church for all these ages and it is taught in Scripture. But aren't there certain doctrines that could be even harmful to people? Some people say, well, you know, if you hold that view, wouldn't that hinder evangelism? If we teach that men and women cannot choose God, even if this is true, don't we destroy the main reason for evangelism? Don't we undercut all the missionary efforts around the world? Isn't it better just to stay quiet about this? It should be good enough that our our Lord Jesus Christ, if you come at it from this point of view, from his mouth came the Great Commission. Go into all the world and what? Preach the gospel. Teach the gospel. Make disciples. Baptizing them. Right? That's what Jesus Christ said. But out of that same mouth, Jesus Christ said this, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Out of the same mouth. And see, people try to take those two truths and go, whoa, wait, wait, we got to kind of kind of mush them together. And that's where they get in trouble. See, I answer the, the idea that this hinders your evangelistic efforts by saying this. I think a proper understanding of this, and this is true in my own life, it actually gives me greater motivation to share the gospel with those who have yet to hear it. I mean, if it's true that the sinner, left by themselves, never naturally seeks out God, 
How is that individual ever going to come to Christ unless other people sent by God carry the gospel to them? That's why he said, go into all the world. Well, yeah, but if you go out there and share with people, they're not going to be able to respond anyway. Isn't that your point? That's true. Not by themselves. They can't respond in and of themselves to the gospel. That's why the Bible says it's through the preaching, it's through the teaching of the gospel that God chooses to call people to faith. And anyone who obeys God and takes the gospel to the lost can be encouraged to know that God will work through that means. That's why in this church we preach the gospel. We preach the Bible. We don't preach five ways to have a happy family. Because we believe that these words have power. They have power to transform lives. That's why when you share your testimony, it shouldn't be all about you. I've heard testimonies, beloved, sometimes that it makes me cringe. Tells about all the bad things. I was pretty bad, you know. I did this and I did that. Murdered people. And then I got saved. Praise God. That's the end of the testimony. It's like, wait a minute. Great. Okay, you had this rough background. You can include that. Why don't we include some scripture? Why don't we talk a little bit about the grace of God? Why don't we talk about, about the power of God that pulled you out of that? Include, always include scripture in your testimony with someone. God will work through that. That's why as evangelists we're called to pray for the sinner. Why? We know that if they're left on their own, there's nothing but the work of God left. It's certainly not by our own eloquence or our own charm or our own nifty little track or our own little whatever we have next to try to show the gospel with people. That's not going to save them. And people say also, surely you're not saying to go out and tell, tell someone who's not a Christian about this. I mean, you know, here in the, in the church, you know, we're all Christians, hopefully, and, and we can talk about this freely, but, I mean, I would never share this with someone who's not a Christian. Why not? Why wouldn't you? I mean, it's exactly what the sinner needs to hear, beloved. They don't need to hear some fancy little story about how Jesus is going to make them happy and wealthy and wise and, and, and healthy. That's not going to save them. That's exactly what the sinner needs to hear. There is no hope. You can't choose God. It's only in such understanding that sinful human beings learn how desperate their situation is and how absolutely essential the grace of God is. See, if we're hanging on even to the slightest little bit of our own self-confidence, concerning our own spiritual ability, no matter how small. We will never really seriously worry about our condition. There'll be no sense of urgency. How many times have you shared the gospel with somebody and their response is, well, you know, life's long. I got a long life ahead of me. You know, I'll time down the road to believe that and maybe commit my life down the road. 
Why? Because they believe that somehow they can bring themselves to believe when they want to believe. I even had one person who was pretty literate in the Bible said, well, what about the thief on the cross? I mean, he waited the last minute. Why couldn't I? That was his mentality. I'm going to wait till my dying. I'm going to have a good time. And then the last minute, I'm just going to cry out, Jesus, save me, and I'll go to heaven. That's great if it's, the decision's up to you. At least most people are ready to take a chance on that kind of thinking. But see, if we believe what the Bible says, that we're truly dead in sin, as Paul says we are, and we've gone over that in the previous weeks, and if that involves our will as well as other parts of our body, we're all dead psychologically, spiritually, we're dead. Maybe then we'll find ourselves in despair. Maybe then we'll find ourselves saying, well, wait a minute, this is a pretty bleak situation, what do we do now? Maybe then we will see our state as hopeless, apart from any supernatural and totally unmerited working of the grace of God in our life. And you know what? That's exactly what God wants. That's exactly what God wants. We serve a God who will not have us boasting, even in the smallest human contribution or effort in our salvation. It's only as we renounce all such vain possibilities that he will show us the way of salvation through Christ and lead us to him. That's our introduction. So turn your hearts to Romans chapter 3. We've looked at the question in verse 9. What then? Are we any better off? Some translations say, are we Jews any better off? We've explained that that's probably talking about the Christians, Paul and the other Christians there in Rome. Because he's covered every other group. And Paul concludes, no, we're not any better off. Just because we're Christians, we're not any better off as far as our our nature is concerned. We're as bad as everybody else. We're all under sin. And he's tried to show them that. Through creation, he's tried to show them that through their conscience. He's tried to show them that in a myriad of ways. And finally, he says, okay, you know what? The cherry on top of the Sunday is I'm not going to mess around anymore. I'm going to give it to you straight, right from God. As it is written, he says in verse 10. I'm going to tell you what God thinks about this situation. And then he begins to talk about human depravity. He begins to talk out of Psalm 14, Psalm 53, Ecclesiastes 7.20. And he says, there is none righteous, not even one. We looked at that last week. There's none righteous. That's total depravity. That word righteous basically means perfect. We looked at three basic views of human nature. The first view said, well, man is essentially good. That's very liberal. You know, man is good, they're kind of evolving, and they're, they're, they're born well and good and everything, and then this world makes them bad. The second view basically says that man is sick, but hopefully he'll get better. The third view, the biblical view, says that no, man is neither well nor sick, he's dead. 
That's what the Bible teaches. And so we began to look at this corruption, the sinful heart, the first thing, three elements. The first element we looked at was the moral nature. It says none is righteous. No, not one. And I encourage you to get the tape from last week or go on the website or whatever and listen to that message because it talks about righteousness, what it is, and how Jesus said, you know what, you want to get to heaven? You have to be perfect. You can't just be good. You have to be perfect. Well, what's perfect mean? Perfect as the Father is perfect. You mean you've got to be perfect like God? Yep. That's the qualification to get to heaven. Well, who's going to do that? Exactly. That's Paul's point. That's God's point. Nobody. Nobody's perfect. Not even one. That's the standard. How does God expect anybody to get to heaven? He doesn't. On their own. He doesn't on their own. That's the whole point of the gospel. If you could get there on your own, do you think somehow that Jesus, I mean, if we could work our way to heaven, do you think that God for one moment would spare his only son to do, go through what he went through? If there was even the slightest possibility that a human being could do it on their own? As a father, answer yourself that question. I mean, that's the whole point of the gospel. There was no way. But he says he'll take care of you through the righteousness of Christ. It's not good and bad. It's bad and perfect. Those are the two choices, and you have to be perfect in order to get to heaven. The problem we think, unfortunately, is that we think all the good things we do, and we think of our own righteousness somehow as being the same as God's righteousness. And I closed last week with that illustration of monopoly money. When you play with monopoly money, it has a purpose in the game. But if you took the, the $500 and $382 of Monopoly money from your game and went down to the bank and said, hey, I want to make a big deposit, and you shoved across the counter Monopoly money, what would happen? They'd laugh at you. They'd say, you're nuts. We're not going to honor this. Why? Because that Monopoly money has a purpose in the game, but it has no purpose in the bank. That's the difference between human righteousness on the one hand and the righteousness that God requires from us. Human righteousness is like monopoly money. It has a purpose in life, the game we call life, but it's not real currency in God's domain. God requires divine righteousness. And the only way that we can have that is through the Lord Jesus Christ. So the moral nature, there's none righteous. We're going to cover the sinful mind this morning in the closing moments. It says no one understands. No one understands. Three words. Paul makes this second pronouncement here about human beings in their sinful condition. And he says, you know what? We don't understand spiritual things. No one does. Now, we have to draw a line of demarcation here in the sand because he's speaking of the lack of spiritual perception. Not merely the lack of human, what? Knowledge. We got a lot of people that are, have a lot of spiritual human knowledge. But they don't have spiritual perception. If we think that we can compare our understanding with someone else's understanding, somebody might have better understanding than we do. That's the way it works in the world. 
But never follow someone based upon their intellect or their proposed wisdom, self-proclaimed wisdom. That's where people get misled. See, we need to see that in spiritual matters, the important thing is that no one truly understands God or seeks to know him spiritually. And that's what he says. And that's from Psalm 14.2. It's from Psalm 53.3. See, the point is, man is not only bad, but he doesn't even understand what good is. He has a warped view of good. And so you can understand that this is not a, a, a cozy picture we're painting here. It's rather bleak. But that's Paul's point. That's the whole point of the gospel. Man has no way of understanding spiritual truth. He has no right understanding of God. He has no right apprehensions of God. He has no ability in his humanness to understand the truth of God. Look over at 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Paul's writing to the church at Corinth, and it's filled with Greeks. If you know anything about the Greek culture, they value wisdom. They value intellect. That's Greek philosophers. That was just, the, the, everything they were about that was, was wisdom and, and grasping knowledge. And Paul writes to them in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 2, look at what he says. He says, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Why did Paul say that? Why would he say that? I don't want to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Two reasons. First of all, he understood that human wisdom was bankrupt. Human wisdom was bankrupt. Look at verse 3. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of what? Wisdom. But in demonstration of the spirit and of power. That your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but where? In the power of God. Look to the left, verse 18 of chapter 1. Paul says, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, once again, referring back to the word of God, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? He asked the question rhetorically. Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For the Jews demanded signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we, we preach Christ crucified which is a stumbling block to the Jews, and it's folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, 
And the weakness of God is stronger than men. In making that indictment, he's basically saying, you know what, wisdom is bankrupt. And the people in the Corinthian church knew it because they were Greek. They, they went down that road of philosophy and wisdom and they probably had their little soothsayers and, and the, the people telling them stuff and they realized it was empty. Why? Because they came to Christ. He's speaking to brothers and sisters in Christ here. And so they knew that that way was bankrupt. The second way Paul makes his decision here is saying that among the Greeks, I just want to preach Christ crucified. And he says it in verse 14 of chapter 2. He says, 1 Corinthians 2.14, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit, for they are folly to him. Look at what it says at the end. And he is what? Not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. They're spiritually discerned. What does that mean? Does that mean that someone who's not a Christian, who doesn't have the Spirit of God, can't have a rational understanding of Christianity? It doesn't mean that. Does that mean that a non-Christian can, can, can't pick this book up and, and read words on the page and understand it? It doesn't mean that. There's a lot of liberal scholars, beloved, in seminaries across the United States that can probably run circles around most of us theologically and explain theological principles as well as any other part of human knowledge, but they're not even converted. An unbelieving philosopher can lecture accurately on the claims of Christ, on the claims of Christianity, on their idea of God. The unbelieving historian can, historian can sit down and tell you about the Reformation and tell you about things you probably don't even know. They don't have the spirit. They're not a believer. But they know the facts. In Romans, go back to Romans 1. We're reminded why this is so. What causes this spiritual ignorance? It says in verse 19 of Romans 1, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. They're without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, animals, and creepy things. Verse 24, Therefore God gave them up to the lust of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. See, it's not that the, the doctrine of God or the doctrine of the Christian faith or the doctrine of Christianity is difficult to comprehend. It's not. I think it's more 
we don't want to move in the direction of comprehending those doctrines because we don't want to go where those doctrines lead us. So we suppress the truth about God. We refuse to glorify or give thanks to Him. And as a result, the Bible says that we become futile in our thinking and our foolish hearts are darkened. In other words, man is literally and utterly cut off from any understanding of God in a spiritual sense. In closing, I just want you to turn to one more scripture, and I promise I'm done. Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. Verse 17. Paul writes, Ephesians 4, 17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as Gentiles do. You must no longer walk as Gentiles do. Four seventeen. Okay. In the futility of their minds, verse eighteen, they are what darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, due to their hardness of hearts. See, the lights have gone out. I mean, their understanding's darkened, they're alienated from the life of God, they're ignorant, they're blind. That's the picture of man. And that's a hopeless picture outside of God's divine intervention. That word blindness there is interesting. It comes from a a word that speaks of a stone harder than marble. And it says there, he's not only blind, he's hopeless. (laughs) You can't put anything in it. He's like a rock. You ever met people like that? I have. And then one day, what happens? God opens their eyes spiritually. And they have a love for Christ that you never would imagine they would have. Because God transforms their thinking. He transforms who they are. He makes them a new person in Christ. But the Bible says here that they're blind, they're ignorant, and yet they're professing to be wise, they're professing to see, and yet they can't see. That's why we need to take the gospel out. That's why we need to live lives that are exemplary of Christ. And a lot of times when you tell people those problems, they don't want to hear it. They run away from you. There's this illustration. I just thought it was kind of funny, so I'll close. John MacArthur tells this illustration. It was actually in the paper. And it was a story about Ringo the duck. And Ringo the duck was a duck that lived up in in Grenadier Park in Toronto in this pond. And back then they had the old pull tabs on the soda cans. And this poor duck got one of those pull tabs around his beak. So he couldn't open his beak. And so for weeks, they tried to capture this duck because he was dying because he couldn't eat. And every time, these people would get to the point where they almost had him. Somehow he'd get away. 
He was thinking somehow they were there to harm him. They brought in this fancy duck caller, the Canadian's duck uh, uh, calling champion. And all the ducks came to him, but not Ringo. And I read one article, and they said, you know, we never don't know what happened to Ringo. Maybe, they, maybe he somehow got the thing off, and he's just one of the other ducks now, or maybe he died. We don't know. But every time they try to help him, he would, he would run the other way. See, that's the way it is with the gospel, beloved. They don't understand that when we attempt to share truth with them, it's not to frighten them. It's to free them. It's not to, to bring a bunch of list and do's and don'ts into their life because they're blinded to the truth of God. They don't know him. That's why we need to be patient. We need to be in prayer. We need to be continual in our presentation of the gospel. I think if we went around the room and said, who here, the first time the gospel was presented to them, went right up and said, yep, yeah, that's it. Probably not very many of us. It took several times. And that's why we should be out there sharing the gospel with those who've yet to hear. Because that's how they will come to a knowledge of the Savior. Please understand that we are pursued by God. We don't pursue God. We are pursued by him. He sought us. We run from him and run from him and run from him. He's known as the hound of heaven, and he just comes after us relentlessly. God has given us understanding that we don't have. He gives us that spiritual understanding to perceive the gospel. We all, if we're believers here today, we remember the day probably when God turned the light switch on. And we realize, wow, I need to commit my life to Christ. I'm a sin, sinner on my way to hell, and unless I do this, I'm going to be utterly lost. And last of all, he has given us a righteousness that we don't have in and of ourselves. We could never have. It's his righteousness through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. I trust this morning that your faith, that your hope is in Christ, in his righteousness and not your own. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We pray that you would take this truth and somehow make a message out of it, make sense out of it. Lord, I ask that you would move and work in hearts even now that are gathered here. Lord, if there's any here who just, for whatever reason, Lord, they're just holding on to a religion. They're holding on to some decision they made years ago, and, and God, you, you've never really changed their life. You've never brought transformation. You've never opened their eyes spiritually. Yeah, maybe they know all the facts about the gospel and they know the books of the Bible and they can recite them left and right. But spiritually, they're dead. Lord, I pray you'd open their eyes to the truth. Give them that desire that they need to seek you out. Because if we're left on our own, we won't do that. It's only because you draw us. And Father, as we leave here today, I pray that we would have a renewed vigor in our bones to share the precious gospel that you saved us with, with those around us, whether it's the guy at the gas station or the supermarket or Costco or people at work. Because Lord, we know that there's no way they will ever know the truth if we don't tell them. They're not going to just figure it out one day. They're dead spiritually. And the only way that they can have life is through the power of your spirit and the word of God. That's why you called us to go. And I pray that we would answer that calling. I pray you'd bless our fellowship after the service this morning. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' precious name.
all God's people said. Amen.